I'm glad you could be here tonight. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read through the first five verses of that chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's in the New Testament, and it's, well, you'll find it sooner or later. It's in there. <clears throat> Well, we had our couple's uh, retreat, and uh, that turned out really well. We had a great time, and a number of couples went, and uh, just, uh, like I say, just a great time of encouragement, and it was a blessing, and uh, well, I'll tell you, it just, uh, I think it's invaluable time spent, not only together as couples, but uh, as, as a, a group from a church, you know, just a fellowship that you can have one with another, and it kind of binds people, and I think it's a tremendous opportunity and tool that the Lord can use to help a church, and uh, nonetheless, it turned out extremely well, and we're very thankful for that. We got a little bit of snow on uh, Friday evening, and that was kind of neat. Woke up to some snow, and uh, I think uh, we got about, oh, I don't know, between six and eight inches up there, I'd say. Seemed like it. I mean, at least around the cars, it was extremely high, and here it wasn't as bad. I thought maybe it was just as bad here, but it wasn't quite as bad. But uh, from what I understand, bad enough. And uh, like I say, within a matter of a couple, three, four hours, everything was cleared off. Everything was good again. And uh, like I say today, wonderful in that the parking lot's looking great and the roads are wonderful. And so that's good. Well, anyway, we want to begin here in Second Timothy chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 1 together. I'll read aloud, you read silently with me. The Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. I want to focus your attention on verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. In the passage, the believers being referred to have what the Bible calls a form of godliness. But they deny the power thereof. They're operating in their own strength. They're depending upon their own flesh. They have a position, but no power. See, the believer has a tremendous position. First of all, we are the children of God, the Bible tells us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, the Bible says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So we're the children of God. Also, the Bible tells us that we're a chosen generation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Amen. We're the children of God. We're the, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. He goes on to tell us that we're, in a, we're elect. We're the elect. In Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. We talked about justification this morning. 
Just as if I never sinned. Something that God does for us. The elect are justified. And we are elect. Number four, we are His workmanship, He tells us. We're speaking of a position. He says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. And finally, we are ambassadors. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Again, then, we are ambassadors for Christ. So we have this tremendous position as believers. I mean, we're the children of God. We're the chosen of God. We're the elect of God. We're the workmanship, His very workmanship, and we are ambassadors. If we took the time to go through Scripture, I'm sure we could even uh, expand on that quite significantly. But tonight, there's no doubt that as a believer, that person that's put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as the Lord has, stands in a tremendous position with God. The truth is we're trophies on display before a world that is in need of purpose. I mean, here they are looking for the purpose of life, seeking purpose in their existence. We are those trophies. We are to shine before men and exhibit God's goodness and grace before a world in tremendous need. Just think for just a moment that you're a child of God if indeed you've trusted Him as Savior. I mean, that is overwhelming, is it not? I remember reading about Tad, President Lincoln's young son. And one day a man had sought to try to get access to the president but couldn't get access to him and was stopped there at the gate. And he is in desperate need of talking to the president. And his heart was broken. And there he sat on a park bench near to tears, totally and completely just overwhelmed with his circumstance. Tad, the young president's son, came along and said, Hey, mister. And the gentleman just kind of raised his head up and said hello. And he said, What's wrong? He said, I wanted to get in to see the president, but they won't let me. Tad said, Well, come on, follow me. And he took that man and he walked up to the gate. And when they saw Tad, he said, He's with me. Through the gate he went, right on into the White House, up to the Oval Office, so to speak. There he ran into the office. Jumped in his daddy's lap and said, Daddy, there's a man that needs to see you. I brought him. Sonship has its privileges. There's great power with the father when you're his child. But sadly, many have a form of godliness. An outward exterior but no power within. It's well noted that a person can have a title or a position, but still lack authority or power. You can be called boss. That doesn't mean anyone will listen. You can be called shift supervisor. 
But that doesn't mean anybody respects you. Too many times foremans or so-called position leaders become frustrated because with their position, they find no followers. They feel they need to resort to threatening their workers to get them to do their job. The fact is they have a position, they have a title, but they lack authority and power. And I believe many believers are in that same boat tonight. I mean, we have a position, but we lack the power. I mean, we may have a position that says we're godly. You say, what kind of position might that be? Well, we're a choir member singing the songs of Zion. Or we're a teacher proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We're a trustee overseeing the finances of the church. We're an usher or a greeter welcoming guests or faithful members to the service. I mean, we're knocking on the doors of a lost and dying world as ambassadors representing Jesus Christ and His kingdom and even this ministry. Those are all positions of godliness to those in the world. You tell somebody that you know that doesn't come to church or has nothing to do with Christ that you sing in the choir at the church house, they think you're godly. You must be close to God, or at least more so than I. You sing in a church choir. You teach in a church Sunday school. You are a trustee at the, the Baptist church down the street. Oh, a position. Possibly just that and only that, though. Because there's a difference between having a position and exhibiting power. These had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. What's the secret to heaven-sent power? God-ordained power. Pentecostal power. When there's a song we sing in our hymn book called Pentecostal Power. Lord, as old at Pentecost, Thou didst Thy power display with cleansing, purifying flame, descend on us today. Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power. Thy floodgates of blessing on us throw open wide. Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power, that sinners be converted and Thy name glorified. See, that power comes only when we align ourselves. Tonight, I want to share a message that I've entitled Position and Power. That power only comes when we align ourselves in prayer, in purity, and in practice. And when we align ourselves in these areas, we can be confident that we will have both the position and the power. So let's pray and then we'll... Consider those three areas. Father, we come to you. Bless us now, these next few moments. May the Spirit of God go forth with great unction. Father, again, I pray that you'd stand in my stead. May you, Father, take control of my tongue. May you anoint my lips. And may I say those things which will be pleasing in thy sight and in thy ears. Father, may you just anoint every listening ear that they may hear from heaven and Lord, may our hearts be stirred by Your Spirit and Your Word tonight. May our lives be ever changed for having come. 
Lord, we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If we want not only a position, but power, we're going to need to align ourselves. We're going to need to align ourselves. Align ourselves in prayer. Being where you're supposed to be. We're to be in prayer. That's where we ought to be as believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible says, Pray without ceasing. It means we ought to be in a constant state of prayer. Why are, we pray, why are we to pray without ceasing? First of all, it places us in God's presence. Prayer places you, it places me in God's presence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly into the throne of grace, he says. As a child of God that's been changed by the redemption and the salvation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have total access to our Father. Even as little Tad, President Lincoln's son, had total access to Him, so we have total access to our Heavenly Father through prayer. It places us in God's presence, but prayer also provides us with great prosperity. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, it says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. It provides us with great prosperity. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I'll give you rest. Well, it seems to me we've got to go to him in prayer then. I mean, he's not standing over there in the corner, is he? He's not physically with us tonight. So how do I come to him? I come to him through his word and on my knees in prayer. Since I'm waiting for God to rescue me, I'm waiting for God to deliver me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me, he says. Draw nigh unto God, and he'll draw nigh unto thee. We're waiting on God to do something when in reality the ball's in our corner. He's kicked to us. We've done the receiving. Now, will we run with it, or will we fumble it out of bounds? Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and shew thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. There's nothing too big for God. He'll provide us with great prosperity in the sense that He'll meet our need, and He'll provide us even with our needs. Prayer places us in God's presence. It provides us with great prosperity, but it also produces glorious power. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read of the apostles and the, the, the disciples that they gathered together. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Is there any wonder that we're so afraid today as we go forth in this world and 
Listen, I'm talking to the best, the cream of the crop. I'm talking to me and I'm talking to you. Why is it we're so fearful to take the gospel to a world that's dying? Why is it we're so ashamed to lift up and magnify our Savior in the midst of a perverse generation? Why is that the case? Why is it so often we're fearful to pass out a tract or invite someone to church or open up the Bible or read it to our friend in public or lead someone to Christ there in the midst and before others? Maybe it's because we really have never really been lately, as we ought to be at least, filled and endowed with the Holy Ghost and with glorious power because we've lacked prayer. John Hyde... He was often called the Apostle of Prayer, or Praying Hyde. One of his books, entitled actually The Apostle of Prayer, he relates an account of a woman missionary who had made up her mind to pray. Let me read a section of that. Behold how much was wrought in the life and work of one woman missionary. She had worked hard for many years in her district, and none of the work there was bearing real fruit. She read the account of Mr. Hyde's prayer life and resolved to devote the best hours of her time to prayer and waiting on God in the study of His work and will. She would make prayer primary and not secondary as she had been doing. She would begin to live a prayer life in God's strength. In less than a year, she wrote a letter, and oh, what a change. New life everywhere, the wilderness being transformed into a garden. Fifteen were baptized at first and 125 adults during the first half of the following year. So she wrote and continued, The most of the year has been a battle to keep to my resolution. I've always lived so active a life, accustomed to steady work all day long. And my new life calls, uh, life called for much of the best part of the day to be spent in prayer and Bible study. Can you not imagine what it was and uh, what it is sometimes now? To hear others going around hard at work while I stay quietly in my room as it were inactive. Many a time I've longed to be out again in active work among the people in the rush of life, but God would not let me go. His hand held me with a real, uh, a real grip as any human hand, and I knew that I could not go Only the other day I felt this again, and God seemed to say to me, What fruit have ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Yes, I knew I was ashamed of the years of almost prayerless missionary life. Every department of the work now is is in more prosperous condition than I've ever known it to be. The stress and the strain have gone out of my life. The joy of feeling that my life is evenly balanced, the life of communion on the one hand and the life of work on the other brings constant rest and peace. I could not go back to the old life and God grant that it may always be impossible. Sidlow Baxter once said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Corey Ten Boom, the World War II death camp survivor, made this statement. She said, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. We must align ourselves in prayer. If we truly want not only a form of godliness, if we want more than a form, if we want the power and not simply a position, we're going to have to align ourselves in prayer. 
Community Baptist Temple will only be as strong as those that pray. The reality is today is that all the singing in the world and all the teaching in the Sunday school classes, all the preparation for messages, none of it means anything without the endued power of the Holy Ghost. And that only comes through prayer. Spend our time in busyness, activity. We wonder why we have only a position and not power. Why doesn't my Sunday school class grow? Why doesn't my choir achieve higher heights? Why doesn't the, 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 my, my uh, crew of workers become more ingrained in the work of God? How's come their minds are not more Christ-like? How's come I can't get anyone to come to church with me? How's come I can't lead anyone to Christ? How's come I'm suffering? And how's come I cannot find any relief in this area? I'm so frustrated because it seems that every attempt of mine to bring others to Him fails miserably. Why is it? Have we ever thought for just a moment that it could possibly be that we're neglecting the most important element of the Christian life? Prayer. I'll try a new method. A new approach. A new format. And still we're prayerless. And powerless. We must align ourselves in prayer. We must be where we're supposed to be if we're going to see the power fall. Not just a position, but have the power to. Number two, we must align ourselves in purity. That's being what we're supposed to be. Not just where we're supposed to be, but we must be what we're supposed to be. Robert Murray McShane wrote to Dan Edwards following his ordination as a missionary. He said, In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. In Scripture, we are admonished to come out from among them. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Years ago, when I gotten out of the army, I took up golfing. I can't honestly say that I ever became a very good golfer. When I first started golfing, I certainly wasn't a good golfer. I struggled immensely. I had an old set of Ben Hogan's or something like that. They're probably worth a million dollars now, and I didn't realize it, but my uncle had owned them. My uncle's in his 70s now. And they didn't have, they were just, they weren't cavity backs or anything. Some of you that golf may know, they were just the regular old-fashioned type golf club. I remember struggling over and over again, hitting those irons and hitting those irons and the ball would just zip forward from about a foot off the ground. I could never get them up in the air. 
I'd hit the I'd hit the woods pretty good, and I felt good about those, and I thought about teeing up every shot in the fairway. But man, I tell you, I couldn't get that ball off the ground, and I remember playing one round of golf one time. I'd go by myself, and I'd walk nine. I just it cost at that time it was six dollars, and I, I had not been married too awfully long, and I remember going to the golf course, and I played that round, and I got to about, I think it was, let's see, one, two, three. It was the fourth hole. No, third hole. And it's set up on like a little, a, a little hill almost. A flat spot on the top of the hill. I finally got the ball up there, which took me forever. I think I was at least eight by the time I got up there. And when I got up there, I went ahead and decided to putt. And, and I, I got up there and I tapped the ball, you know, and it got probably within six feet of the hole. And so I got up there again and I was running about nine now. I thought I'd at least finish with a ten. And I hit that ball again and it went by that hole. And I remember in frustration taking that club and just winging it as hard and as far as I could into the woods. Whoo! There it sailed. And it kept sailing. And it disappeared in those woods. I made a decision that day. I decided I'd never play another game of golf if I could not control my temper. I sat there and I got convicted of the Holy Spirit. And he said, what if somebody just saw you throw that club? You're supposed to be my ambassador. I wasn't a preacher at the time. But I did want to honor God with my life. And I remember feeling about that little there that day as I stood on that little hill all by myself. And I looked around in a sh- in hoping no one saw me. And I said, God, I'll never play another game of golf as long as I live if it means losing my temper. If I can't control my temper, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And for over a month, I didn't even touch a club. And one day I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I'm not going to get mad like that. I can honestly say I've never thrown a club like that ever again. Oh, I've been upset with myself, but I've never gotten like that. But let me tell you something. I gave it up for a month, and I'd have given it up for a lifetime if it meant standing between me and God. If it would have hindered my purity, if it had kept me from being what God intended me to be, no game in this world's worth losing my state with God, or my status. I'm telling you today that there may be something in your life that you know God doesn't approve of. You know it as sure as you're sitting there that He's not pleased with that in your life. Let me ask you, do you have the guts to give it up? I mean, are you more concerned about whether or not you're pure and righteous and holy in the sight of God? Or whether you're comfortable and your flesh is fed? 
Hey, listen, it takes some guts to say no to yourself. He says, come out from among them and be ye separate, say the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with a golf club. But there was for me. And I had to deal with it. I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you believe today in Christianity that we're being desensitized by the present evil world? Do things that once shocked us now pass us by with little notice? Have our sexual ethics slackened? Yes. Have our sexual ethics lessened or slackened? My goodness, we are pitiful. Downright sickening. Where do our minds wander when we have no duties to perform? What are we reading? Are there books or magazines or files in our libraries that we want no one else to see? What are we renting at the local video stores? How many hours do we spend watching TV? How many adulteries did we watch last week? How many murders? How many did we watch with our children? How many chapters of the Bible did we read last week? Two Bible college students were walking along a street in Whitechapel District of London. It's a section where old and used clothes are often sold. One of the young men said, what a fitting illustration all this makes. He pointed to a suit of clothing hanging on a rack by a window. A sign on it read, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. Slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. Not greatly soiled, slightly. It doesn't take much sin to soil us and reduce our value. See, our power is tied to our purity. And when we surrender to the flesh by viewing vulgar photos, reading sensual material, listening to inappropriate media, or allowing ourselves a a little indulgence in dishonest or lustful thoughts, we short-circuit the power of God in our life. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21 says, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the Master's use, and prepared unto every good work. It's a constant battle to be pure in this world. It's a daily challenge. It's even hourly and even minute by minute at times. But purity equals power. No purity, no power. Is there any wonder why our churches are dying? Any wonder why our families are wrecked and ruined? Any reason why our 
Marriages are falling apart at record pace. There's no purity. Our tongue is no different than the world's. Our mind is no more transformed than theirs. Our lifestyle is just as wicked, sinful as theirs. And we wonder why we, being believers, struggle with producing something positive in our lives, our marriages, our homes, our churches, our communities. There's no one in this room, including me, that has this all handled. We're all sinners, yes. But there is never a right to be sinful. They never have that right. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we can never use that as an excuse to sin. I was talking to my wife the other day on the way home from the couple's retreat and I I said, "It, it bothers me when I hear people say things like, well, I'm just a sinner. No, you're a saint. I mean, it's almost like they wear that sinner as a badge nowadays. Well, at least, I've, at least I'm honest about it. At least I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, all pious and self-righteous. I admit that I'm a sinner. Well, that doesn't give you a right to wear it like a badge and live like the devil. To embrace the world's philosophies and ideologies and ultimately characteristics. Well, I'm a sinner. I can't help it. Yes, you can. You're a saint if you are indeed in Christ. I want power in my Christian life. Doesn't it bother you how powerless... We are. Doesn't it bother you how powerless you are? It bothers me that I'm powerless so often. Prayer. Purity. Remember, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. When we deal in evil... When we disregard holiness, it isn't long after when the time comes of our, that our character is being appraised and it's found to be of little value. It's greatly reduced in price. Our purity, our strength, our power is gone. And in fact, it's usually the little secret sins that truly weaken our character. And they weaken our character to the point that when that real moral crisis comes, we'll never stand the test. As a result, we go down in spiritual defeat because we've been careless about little sins. Imagine all the obstacles that a person might have to overcome if he were to walk from New York City to San Francisco. I mean, you walk literally across the country. How many obstacles do you think you'd face? Well, one man who accomplished this rare achievement mentioned a rather surprising difficulty when he was asked to tell of his biggest hurdle. He said that the toughest part of the trip wasn't traversing the steep slopes of the mountains or crossing hot, dry, barren stretches of desert. Instead, he said this. He said, the one thing 
that came the closest to, to defeating me was the sand in my shoes. The one thing that came the closest to defeating me was the sand in my shoes. I mean, he literally walked from New York to San Francisco. It wasn't the mountains. It wasn't the rain. It wasn't the weather. It was the sand in his shoes. When it comes to our purity, it'll be those secret sins. You know, the ones no one knows about. The ones that committed up here especially. See, listen, we need to align ourselves in purity. We must be what we're supposed to be. Saints, holy unto God. Not only must we align ourselves in prayer and purity, but we need to align ourselves in practice. That means doing what we're supposed to be doing. If we want the power and not only the position, then we must be where we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The Christian life is a relationship. But no relationship is one-sided, is it? And if it is, it doesn't last long. If we ever hope to see souls saved, lives transformed and changed, if we ever hope to experience revival that will light up our churches and our society, then we're going to have to do what it takes. Psalm chapter 126, verse 5 and 6 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. See, the prevailing attitude in our Christian ranks is that of apathy and defeat, it seems. I'm convinced that the rebellion and disobedience of a past generation has bred a defeated outlook in the minds and hearts of this generation. I guess I need to say that one again. You didn't get it. I'm convinced that the rebellion and disobedience of a past generation has bred a defeated outlook in the minds and hearts of this generation. Here's my point. Why would the leadership of a church after uh, why would the leadership of church after church be departing from the proven methods of outreach and growth if they'd experienced it firsthand themselves? Why would they be doing that? I mean, how's come all that so many churches are closing their doors on Sunday night and Wednesday night? They're no longer going door-to-door soul winning. They're no longer doing any personal confrontational outreach. I'll tell you why. Because in their minds, it's proven it doesn't work. The devil sits on the sideline smiling. I'm concerned that most leaders who abandon the growth, excuse me, most that abandon the, the old ways are those that have not experienced the successes of it. See, when someone tells me that door-to-door evangelism no longer works or is effective, that's proof positive that they just don't go faithfully. I didn't say you didn't go once or twice. 
I'm telling you, you go faithfully and you go in the presence and the power of the Lord. You go according to Psalms 126, 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bring his sheaves with him. You'll see God do something. That's just God's way. He says, and daily in, the, in every house. Well, we've got to get the gospel to the homes. How's that going to happen? The power we're searching for is rooted in obedience. See, doing right does indeed produce power. First of all, there's power in a personal testimony. The Apostle Paul was one of the most learned and educated men in the Word of God. One of the most educated apostles even. He sat at the feet of a well-known teacher in that day by the name of Gamaliel. He's not only well-educated, but he was well-versed in the Scriptures, seeing that he was used to write 13, if not 14, books of the Bible in the New Testament. Through the years, he had assuredly seen and experienced just almost every conceivable situation, and yet... When he was given the opportunity to share his vast knowledge with the, the, the famed King Agrippa, he simply shared his testimony. He tells King Agrippa about his salvation experience and, and he tells him about his call, the call of God upon his life. See, Paul had a testimony. His life was in alignment with that testimony. There's power in a personal testimony. There's power in a proven track record. You know those Hebrew children? The ones that were cast into the fiery furnace? They wouldn't bow a knee. You know Daniel in the lion's den? You've heard the story how he would pray even though he was ordered not to. Hey, listen, that wasn't the first time, nor would it be the last time that David would pray. He had a proven track record. His enemies, as a matter of fact, chose that method by which to somehow trap him so that he would be thrown into that lion's den. Those three, three Hebrew children were trapped that way because there was a decree that was made for, with that king and he could not break his promise. They had to go into that fiery furnace. Listen, those kings and those princes knew their strengths and weaknesses. They knew they had a proven track record. If we just institute this law, if we just put this principle in place, they will have to die. Let me ask you something. Is your track record that proven that if someone truly wanted to get you into trouble for the gospel's sake, they could easily do it? There's power in a proven track record. There's power in a life that's lived in a way that when you go to work, people say, yeah, for the last ten years, that guy has been nothing but totally honest, a man of integrity and character. He's always on time. He clocks in when he's supposed to. He clocks out when he should. He clocks back in. He clocks back out. He's always here when he's supposed to be here. He always accomplishes what he's supposed to accomplish. He's always obedient to the leadership. He does what he's supposed to do. She does what she's supposed to do. She's always on it. Her testimony is flawless. His testimony is flawless. They have a Christian character. They go to church. They read their Bible. I see them at lunch sometimes, memorizing Scripture. They're always consistent. A proven track record. There's power in that kind of life. And then there's power in a performed truth. 
Think of those disciples that were given the Great Commission. They obeyed the Lord and carried the gospel around the world. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the cities, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They turned the world upside down. You know what they did? They performed a truth. They obeyed God. In obeying God, there is power. James Hudson Taylor said, I've seen many men work without praying, though I've never seen any good come out of it. But I have never seen a man pray without working. I've never seen a man pray without working. Someone tells you that they're always praying, they're too, they're too busy to work. They're not praying. You can't pray for lost souls before long and not be out there. You can't be praying for lost loved ones and genuinely, sincerely praying brokenheartedly without ultimately reaching out to them. It's not prayer that keeps us in our homes and locked in the walls of our churches. It's the lack thereof. And the reality is today is that when we perform truth, when we take this book off the pages and truly apply it to our lives and carry it out into a world in need, there'll be power in that. Bob Jones Sr. said, Do right. When the stars fall, do right. Over the last 15 years, young people have been asked a simple question. If there was a fire in a house and your cat was in there or a stranger, who would you save? You know what the majority of teens say? Their cat because they love their cat. You know what? We operate from our own feelings. Not express truth, moral truth found in that book. Why in the world would you ever save an animal over a person? What's wrong with our culture and our society when how I feel is more important than what God says? We wonder why we have no power today. Why people don't walk the aisles and get saved. Why lives aren't transformed as we would like to see them transformed. Instead of pointing to churches and pointing to pastors and pointing to others that are in leadership, why don't we look at our own lives for a minute? And ask ourselves, do I just have a position? Or do I also have the power? We need to start removing beams out of our own eyes. Before we start trying to get little motes out of others. In the Christian life, you're wearing a dress or little suit coming to church 
Those things are important. Don't misunderstand me. But I'll tell you one thing. We have no concern for souls today. We're as cold as ice when it comes to compassion. We have not one nerve left. We're always on edge. And everybody's a jerk. There's no power. There's just position. And the truth is, the church today has a form of godliness so often, but denies the power thereof. The reason the church is in that state is because its people are. I'm convinced that it starts with me. But until you realize that it has to start with you, we're dead. It's easy to say someone else has to do it. The Wales Revival began because a bunch of teenagers got together and had prayer meetings. They coined it as a youth revival or young people. 18, 19, 20-year-olds. I'm tired of waiting on the young people. I wish we'd have a revival start with a 70-year-old. Maybe that's what it takes in this generation. We're always looking for someone else to start it. To kindle the fire. I want to encourage you. Encourage you to pray. Be pure. And what's the last one? Practice. Align yourself with those three areas. And you'll not only have a position, but you'll experience the power of God. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the hope and the help that you give us. God, each and every one of us are needs.